Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government are we ready? I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In recent years, hydrogen has risen as an important prospect in the energy transition. Not only is hydrogen the most common element in the world, but it also has great potential as a cleaner energy source for hard-to-abate sectors like freight, air, and naval transport. Latin America is looking closely at the hydrogen industry, and governments in countries such as Chile, Colombia, Brazil, and Paraguay are betting on green hydrogen production. That is, hydrogen that is produced with renewable sources, such as wind and solar, as opposed to coal, natural gas, or other non-renewables. Yet the hydrogen industry is still a nascent one, and among many challenges, having to develop demand while at the same time scaling up production is an enormous endeavor. This week, we are joined by Sunita Satyapal, Director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technologies Office within the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Dr. Satyapal is also the Vice Chair of the International Partnership for Hydrogen and Fuel Cells in the Economy, a partnership of over 20 countries to accelerate progress in hydrogen. She also serves as the U.S. co-lead for hydrogen efforts within the Clean Energy Ministerial and Mission Innovation. In this episode, we will look into the potential of hydrogen development in the Western Hemisphere, with a special focus on green hydrogen and its role in the energy transition across the region. We will also delve into current challenges and opportunities that the resource offers and what the U.S. model may offer Latin American countries to develop the industry. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Satipal. Thank you so much, Ryan. Now, you have had an extensive career in academia, industry, and government working on hydrogen and fuel cell research, but this is still a new sector and relatively less understood than other forms of, of energy. Now, as I understand it, Hydrogen is not an energy source, but a conduit of energy. So could you explain to our listeners, the non-scientists, how does hydrogen work? What would be your elevator pitch? Great. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Ryan. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, hydrogen is, although it's the most abundant and simplest element in the universe, it's typically not found on Earth as free hydrogen. It's tied up in other compounds such as water, so you need to produce it. So it's an energy carrier that you can use for energy. And uh, in terms of you know, why there's so much interest in hydrogen, there's three main reasons. One is versatility. So in terms of the elevator pitch, I think it's really hydrogen is often called the Swiss Army knife for clean energy. You can produce it from diverse domestic resources such as renewables, nuclear, even fossil with carbon management. And then you can use it for multiple applications. And especially those hard-to-decarbonize sectors, such as heavy-duty transportation, industrial applications. So again, it's that flexibility, the optionality. You can use it as a fuel um, or as a feedstock. You can make power. You can make chemicals like fertilizer or make steel. You can store energy. So it's really that that versatility. And then two other main points are, um, first of all, countries are recognizing that they really need a carbon-free molecule, such as hydrogen, to meet their climate goal. So electrification alone um, is not going to make it. And then finally, 
with the cost of renewables coming down, we're starting to see hydrogen become more cost competitive, especially in regions of the world where the cost of natural gas is high. So again, I think it's the, the versatility of hydrogen, both in terms of the production and in terms of the end use, which is the kind of the main uh, takeaway message. Could you please explain uh, what makes hydrogen different from other renewables? What characterizes the different types of hydrogen? Hydrogen is actually a colorless and odorless gas. And even though it doesn't have color, you often find that it is described by color. So, for example, green hydrogen refers to renewables producing hydrogen from electrolysis. So solar and wind using an electrolyzer to split water to produce hydrogen and oxygen. Blue hydrogen is often referred to when you use natural gas to produce hydrogen, but then capture the carbon dioxide. Otherwise, it would be gray hydrogen. And if you use nuclear, it's often called pink hydrogen. So there are many different types of, of colors that are used. But in reality, uh, we are actually trying to get away from the colors and really focus on carbon intensity. So the main point is no matter how you produce the hydrogen, we're focusing on clean hydrogen and trying to get that CO2 footprint down. Hydrogen began gaining traction in places like Australia, Europe, and Japan. In Latin America, we often hear that the hydrogen industry is not a zero-sum game and that by working together, the industry could be strengthened. How would you describe the development of hydrogen globally and in the hemisphere? What partnerships were key? What catalyzed these relationships? Great. Well, uh, it just so happens I returned from an IPHE uh, steering committee meeting in Costa Rica, and we have multiple partners throughout the, the region, Latin America, South America, Central America, and there's so much opportunity there. So in terms of the global landscape, we in the U.S. produce about 10 million metric tons of hydrogen, about 10% of the global capacity. But when you look at the resources available in Latin America, whether it's renewables, uh, solar, wind, uh, hydropower, um, and then biomass. There are so many opportunities to produce the hydrogen. And then there are also opportunities to store the hydrogen, store energy, and then use the hydrogen in multiple applications as well as potentially export hydrogen. So, for example, uh, Chile is really interested in that. There's a new uh, multiple countries have strategies. Colombia has a strategy. Costa Rica which also operated, you know, completely on renewable, is looking at hydrogen now and also developing a national strategy. So uh, globally, there's just so much focus on producing clean hydrogen that can be used to help decarbonize um, and achieve climate goals for each of the countries. To what extent have global and regional initiatives strengthened cooperation and coordination among nations? That's a great question, and there have been numerous global initiatives uh, for hydrogen. Uh, for example, there was actually a global action agenda that was launched uh, by Japan at the Hydrogen Energy Ministerial a few years ago, and there are multiple global partnerships. For example, the International Partnership for Hydrogen and Fuel Cells in the Economy, IPHE, which was formed in 2003 and brings together uh, over 20 countries at the government level to accelerate progress in hydrogen. 
And there's the Clean Energy Ministerial Mission Innovation, really bringing together, you know, all of our counterparts to focus on research, development, deployment, enabling activities. And then in addition, there are a number of regional initiatives. For instance, in the U.S., we've had demonstrations. Actually, uh, across the world, there have been examples of, quote, hydrogen valleys or hydrogen hubs, where it brings together producers and users from a regional local perspective so that we can match supply of clean hydrogen and demand and really help to catalyze the market, the the local regional benefits, the workforce, and show the the value of, of hydrogen and wrapping up the, the market in those regions and across uh, countries. Now, what about the private sector? Have some of these initiatives managed to create a bridge between the public and the private sectors? Yes, definitely. And for instance, in our case at the U.S. Department of Energy, we provide funding that includes the private sector, and very often there's cost share by the private sector. So we have examples where we provide either you know, research, development, or demonstration funding, and the private sector uh, provides matching funds, and then there's follow-on investments. There, We also have a loan program office, so provide financing or loan guarantees. And so just as one example in the U.S. with the American Recovery Act raised a decade ago, we helped to de-risk some hydrogen and fuel cell examples with forklifts. So this is a very niche market. And we saw that, you know, from the business case perspective, companies were looking for completely zero emissions within uh, their warehouses. And it was difficult to use batteries in some cases because of the long fueling time and the amount of space needed for, for the batteries and the battery storage swap out. So hydrogen fuel cells provided a good value proposition and we helped to de-risk and demonstrate a few hundred and now they're over 50,000 really funded by industry by the private sector. In fact, every few seconds, some customers refueling with hydrogen or the, the forklift in the warehouses and major companies like Amazon, Walmart, and so forth are using them. So that's an example of how we've been able to catalyze and bring in the private sector to jumpstart the market. This September, the Department of Energy released a draft of its National Clean Hydrogen Strategy, where you lay out strategies for targeting end uses of hydrogen, reducing the cost of clean hydrogen, and focusing on regional networks. I want to start by asking about end users of hydrogen, the demand side. What can be done to strengthen demand and what sectors do you think will be catalyzers? Yeah, thank you so much, Brian, for mentioning the national strategy. So this was actually required um, in the U.S. through the bipartisan infrastructure law that was assigned signed into law last November by President Biden. And the strategy was published as a draft for stakeholder and for public comment. And the focus was, as you said, target strategic end uses of hydrogen, so especially those hard to decarbonize sectors, reduce the cost of hydrogen, and then focus on regional networks. And in terms of the end users and how we see catalyzing the market, as I said before, we, we produce about 10 million metric tons in the U.S. of hydrogen. And the goal here in terms of the national strategy is 10 million of clean hydrogen by 2030, and then up to 50 million metric tons 
of clean hydrogen in the U.S. by 2050. And so the way we see the market based on you know all the, the industry and stakeholder feedback is starting with the existing industries, so such as refining and fertilizer production. That's where we see some of the, the early offtakes, the switching from natural gas-based hydrogen to clean hydrogen, and then uh, gradually uh, opening up to additional applications. So, for instance, uh, heavy-duty trucks, long-haul trucks, there's a lot of interest in liquid fuels, so e-fuels, such as sustainable aviation fuels, energy storage is another one, uh, other chemicals such as methanol, um, uh, some biofuels, also steel production. So we'll see, again, starting with some of the large-scale existing markets and then ramping up across sectors and applications as we get to scale. And now, what about production costs and ultimately hydrogen prices? In your opinion, what will be the main factors driving down production costs? And is it realistic to expect that clean hydrogen or even green hydrogen will be competitive by, say, 2030? Yes, and here we have, you may have heard of the U.S. Department of Energy's uh, Energy Earthshot Initiative that we launched the hydrogen shop uh, last year. So this is a bold, ambitious goal to get to $1 per kilogram of hydrogen in one decade. So it's an easily articulated target of 111. And these are similar to the, the moonshot from over half a century ago. So these really challenging goals to, to galvanize the global community. And so I absolutely think we can get there by 2030. If you look at the investment that we're putting in, that the private sector is putting in, where our baseline cost is about $5 per kilogram of hydrogen. So in the U.S., based on you know, low-volume uh, electrolyzer cost and you know, today's renewable cost, but we see pathways to get to $2 per kilogram by 2026. That's actually required in the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law. In fact, we just announced plans for a major funding opportunity announcements and then meet our hydrogen shot goal, which is $1. In the U.S., hydrogen is about $1.50 from natural gas. And so to be competitive, we're targeting that $1. That's what really the, is needed to unlock market potential across applications and get to scale. So I would say in terms of your question about, you know, will we get there by 2030, uh, we have really all hands on deck. We're focusing on the research development. We've launched consortia so with our national labs, uh, bringing in universities, industry. We have plans for, we've already had announcements of gigawatt scale uh, manufacturing for electrolyzers. So one part of that is to ramp up economies of scale that will help to cut the cost by over half. And then we're also funding some of the, the fundamental technology development, such as catalysts and uh, membranes and various components of the electrolyzers, creating the supply chain. So all that will help to reduce the cost uh, in addition to, of course, relying on lower cost electricity and sustained off-takers. Attracting private capital is certainly important for the industry to develop. There are still many unknowns about the market that make investment risky. What can governments, multilateral organizations, cooperation agencies, and others do to de-risk the industry and increase private investment? 
Yeah, that's really a great uh, question. And I think there's been a lot of discussion on the importance of creating really clear signals, really clear commitments by governments and multiple organizations. So both in terms of policies and also in terms of enabling the deployments, you know, research, development, demonstration. So there are many tools in the, in the toolbox. So in terms of, again, what can governments and other organizations do? Um, we provide funding. So for research development, we bring resources to bear, such as our national labs, universities, to focus on the challenges and then uh, help to de-risk the technology. So for instance, we fund many of the, the first of a kind demonstrations. So that's where it's a little risky for the private sector alone to, to invest. And then we also help to, uh, you know, provide the workforce training. Uh, we have activities on safety codes and standards. We have, for example, the, the loan guarantee programs that offer that, that bridge to bankability where the conventional lenders are more risk averse. So especially with new technologies. So there's now, you know, billions available. In fact, in the U.S. alone, there were two major uh, projects, loan guarantee projects announced for hydrogen. Uh, one billion and half a billion, and one is the the largest so far energy storage uh, system, where an electrolyzer will be used and will store uh, energy for use uh, for power and other uses. And then another is based on pyrolysis. So this is uh, producing a carbon product instead of CO2. And so again, those are those are some examples of what um, governments can do to help you know, to de-risk the industry, also help to increase uh, private sector uh, investments. We've spoken about several initiatives around hydrogen development. I do want to zoom in on the hydrogen shot, which you've mentioned previously. It was launched last summer and seeks to accelerate innovations and spur demand of clean hydrogen. Who are the different stakeholders that you're bringing together to the table and how can collaboration efforts such as these expand to increase regional and global players in the hydrogen market? That's a great question. And what we did when we launched Hydrogen Shot is we started, we, we had a summit where we brought together major stakeholders. We had over 3,000 from industry. We had investors, national labs, universities, uh, governments. And there were over 30, maybe 40 countries or so participated. And so we also launched consortia. So in the U.S., uh, we have 17 national labs under the stewardship of DOE, uh, over 50 Nobel Prize winners. We have amazing capabilities at the national lab. And so we launched consortia. For example, one of them is called H2NU, which stands for Next Generation Electrolysis of Water. And another one called Hydrogen uh, for hydro, you know, generation of hydrogen. And so we fund the national labs for core capabilities. And then we also bring in university, industry, other national laboratories and other stakeholder institutes and so forth to work with the labs, avoid duplication, leverage the resources and the talents and have a really focused, cohesive concerted effort to address the, the challenges there. So bringing in, again, all the different players, um, investors as well is another example. So we've had examples where we we fund, again, DOE, and my office funds 
the research and then the recipients, so it could be companies, universities, others, develop the innovations. And so it's just one example. We have over 1,200 patents, the U.S.-issued patents, um, as a result of the government funding. But then we also bring in investors, manufacturers who may be interested in licensing those patents and uh, really accelerating the transition of those technologies from the laboratory to the marketplace, to commercialization. So those are other examples of how we you know, bring together different stakeholders to accelerate progress. Excellent. Uh, what do you think will be the key determinants for success? So I think in general, I think for hydrogen and really for, for all key technologies, people talk about three legs of the stool. So we need uh, the technology. So we made lots and lots of progress. For instance, just in, in our area, we've quadrupled the durability. We've cut costs by, you know, 80, over 80% in many cases. But we still need the technology. We, we need the cost, the performance. It has to be competitive. And then second, we also need the policies in place to help to catalyze the market. And we do have that now. So. As you may know, and the audience may know, in the U.S., we have, in addition to the bipartisan infrastructure law, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, and that includes tax credits for hydrogen, for clean hydrogen, so as much as $3 a kilogram, depending on the carbon intensity, to drive down the cost of of hydrogen in the near term. So we need the, the technology, we need the policies in place to help jumpstart the market, and then the third leg of this stool is often called the, the investments, that we need the financing, the investments, um, and then the private sector for real sustained you know, market penetration, market liftoff. So those, we need all those three um, components simultaneously to, to really get to the success that we're talking about. Dr. Satyapal, is there something that we did not cover, anything else that you would like to highlight or add? I think just that this is such a critical time for the industry, and I've been at DOE for over 19 years now, So, uh, and in addition to being the director for the Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technologies Office and coordinating you know, across the, the global initiatives you've mentioned, I also am the DOE Hydrogen Program Coordinator and you know, coordinate uh, working across all of the dis- different initiatives working with private sector um, as well as labs, universities. Uh, I think that the main message is the importance of collaboration and coordination to be as effective as possible. Again, there's so much interest in hydrogen. And one of the um, the quotes that's often used, I can get you the, the name, but basically, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no one, no one person can whistle a symphony. It really takes the whole orchestra. And so I think trying to ensure that we don't have stovepipes, we really need government, federal, state, local, industry. I think uh, it's great having this type of dissemination of information, especially if we look at the regions of the country, just uh, Latin America where we bring together all the players, we need the entire supply chain as well. So in terms of hydrogen, there's quite a bit of complexity because we have hydrogen production, delivery, storage, infrastructure. There's so many different end uses. And so when you look at what's needed, the technology, 
um, code standards, uh, siting, permitting, regulatory challenges. They're also very application specific, so such as uh, transportation, if you're looking at marine or aviation or trucks. And so there's just so much added complexity when it comes to uh, hydrogen technologies. It's very cross-sectoral. And so I think, again, the main takeaway is we have a lot of the pieces in place. So again, after so many decades in this space, this is the, the time where we need to have all hands on deck and make sure we have you know very clear um, targets, a clear action plan, metrics for success, and be flexible enough and accelerate our work as much as possible. Dr. Sunita Satyapal, among many other hats, her principal one is as director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technologies Office within the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Thank you so much for joining us today on 35 West. Thank you so much, Ryan, for posting. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.